How's everybody doing? Good, good. Hey, I was telling the Saturday night crowd, and I'll tell you guys too, I just, and I, I never want to say it uh, um, haphazardly or, or, or um, um, without, without consideration of what I'm saying. We really, really appreciate the fact that you guys come out here every single week. Uh, I was bragging to someone the other day just about the quality of people that come to our church, and we're so blessed. I mean, like, our parking lot looks like, you know, the apocalypse just happened in it, and you guys, like, keep coming. I just think it's really, really awesome, and uh, I just appreciate it. I appreciate you guys cutting out of time uh, in your week, in your busy weekends. I know everyone's busy. I used to think I was the one who was the most busy, and everyone's busy. And um, you guys cut out some time, and it's very, very important that you guys come here and um, that we worship together and we corporately gather. And I love, uh, I love getting to know more and more of you, and I love seeing your lives change, and, and it's just great. God is really, really good. We're really, really fortunate to have this. Um, this doesn't happen all over the world. It doesn't even happen all over the United States. Uh, I'm just really, really fortunate. Uh, we're really fortunate that we have this. I was actually listening to a podcast recently, and this has nothing to do with the book of Hebrews, by the way. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently, and um, there's a lot of people who talk about how far the modern-day church has strayed from how church was done in the second, third, and fourth centuries when the church really began. And it's funny, we really haven't at all. Of course, we have heat and air, and we have sound systems and microphones and stuff like that. But the services that were led by the second and third century churches, um, they usually met in, uh, it's funny, people always say, we should go back and do it like the second and third century. And like, well, they used to meet in graveyards sometimes if you want to go do that. But anyways, so they would get together and they would congregate and they would sing some songs that usually involved a lot of scripture. If you notice the songs that we sang today, there's a lot of scripture thrown into those songs, especially that last one. It's my favorite worship song. There's all these scripture thrown into it. So they would sing songs to help teach people scripture and to help just kind of get people in the atmosphere to worship God and to hear the word of God. So if they would worship, they would have someone come up. Sometimes they'd have multiple people who would speak and expound on the Old Testament, and then again, eventually the New Testament when it became available, and at the end, they would take communion. It's essentially what we do here every single week. The only difference is, is maybe the crowds are a little bit bigger, and we have microphones, and we have you know, lights and stuff like that, but essentially it's the same thing that they've been doing for about 1,800 years now. The church hasn't really changed much. And so it's just, again, we're just really, really fortunate that we get to do what we do in here. And so if you're new here Man, you're sitting with some of the greatest people in the entire world. And if you're skeptical of our faith, if you're skeptical of, of church, if you've been hurt, uh, the book of Hebrews is fantastic. Let me give you guys a quick overview real quick before we get into the actual text. Now, we just got done with the book of Daniel, Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is New Testament. It's right after the book of Philemon, which probably doesn't help much. Uh, it's right after the book of Philemon. It's right before the book of James. That might help you a little bit. Um, this is a really great book of the Bible. It kind of ties in the Old Testament and New Testament really, really well, but there's not a whole lot we know about where this letter was going or even who wrote it, okay? A lot of people believe Paul wrote it, but that's probably not the case. It's, you know, it's very safe to say that Paul did not write this book of the Bible. The reason why is the style is dramatically different from other Paul's writings, and also, when Timothy is referred uh, to in Hebrews, he's referred to as a brother. And Paul always referred to Timothy as his son. It wasn't literally his son, but he treated him like a son. Okay, so it makes it doubtful that he wrote this. Now, here's something interesting about the book of Hebrews. It's one of the only books of the Bible that they think a woman might have wrote. A woman named Priscilla. It probably wasn't Priscilla, but it's just interesting to think that it might have been her. She was the wife of a man named Aquila. They were tent makers. They were Italians. They were really, really close to the Apostle Paul, and she was very, very intelligent. She was a business owner with her husband, and they think that she might have helped 
write Hebrews. Again, she probably didn't because it mentions Paul traveling with the author, and that would have been inappropriate. Um, they thought it could have been Luke, um, Barnabas, who I, that's who I probably think it was, Barnabas, uh, Apollos, a guy named Clement from Rome, Peter, a guy named uh, Aristian. It doesn't really matter who wrote it. It matters what the content is, but we don't know who the author is. There's a lot of speculation, but we don't know. Whoever the author of this book was knew the recipients of the letter very well. They must have been close. And so he or she identifies themselves as a second generation Christian, which probably takes Luke out, right? Because he wasn't, or Peter, they were first generation Christians. They were one of the original disciples. And this was a disciple of one of the disciples. So a second generation Christian wrote Hebrews, okay? So the original recipients must have known who the writer was because they asked this individual for prayer. So it's hard to ask for a prayer request if you don't know who that's going to or if you don't know each other's names. And they expressed this desire for Timothy to come the next time that the author visited. So again, it probably wasn't a woman just because it would have been inappropriate for a married woman to travel with a young unmarried man, Timothy, to go visit this church. So it probably wasn't that, okay? But they knew the recipients very, very well. When the book was written is also somewhat unclear. We have a ballpark but we don't know exactly when. Now in 70 AD, if you know anything about Roman history or Jewish history, in 70 AD, and we talked about this a little bit in Daniel, a guy named Emperor Titus from the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem, which was a Roman province at that time, and wiped out Jerusalem, okay? Just leveled it. Even Jesus talked about this, that no stone would be left on another. I mean, they're gonna like thoroughly destroy Jerusalem. That had not happened yet when Hebrews was written. So it's safe to say it happened before the destruction of Jerusalem. If it was after, the author would have mentioned that, right? And so it's not mentioned in there. So they think it was somewhere in about 64, 65 AD, 64, 65 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, what's important about that and what's important about all study of the Bible is if we know it was written in the 60s, not the 1960s, the 60s, if we know it was written in the 60s, we know that there was intense persecution on the Christians in Jerusalem at that time. There was a guy named Emperor Nero who was just crazy, right? Super psycho, killed a lot of great Christians. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he had a hand in killing Paul and Peter. This guy was super crazy. They, they think he lit Rome on fire to blame it on the Christians, crazy. They were under extreme persecution at this time. And because the Christians were under extreme persecution, a lot of the Christians were turning away from the Christian faith, or at the very least, they were lying. Basically, people would say, are you a Christian? They'd say, no, 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 I'm not a Christian. Now, look, it's easy for us to beat up on people like that. When someone walks up and says, I'm going to take you and your wife and your kids, and I'm going to kill all of you unless you renounce Jesus or unless you say you're not a Christian, we can at least empathize why some people said they weren't Christians, right? I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong, but we can at least empathize. So the author of Hebrews knew that this persecution was going on. He knew that a lot of people were starting to turn their back on their faith. So he wrote this, this book of the Bible, encouraging them and showing them how important Jesus Christ is. Now look, with all parts of the Bible, it is vitally important that we know the context Whenever people pull one scripture out and just really manipulate it and make it say what they want it to say, I, I just cringe at that. We need to know the setting. We need to know the demographic. We need to know the background because if we don't, we can misconstrue what the Bible says. Let me give you a really good example. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church in Corinth that women should not speak in church. 
So if someone reads the Bible and they don't study about what the city of Corinth was, the, the different things going on in that church, what that particular chapter was talking about, you can step back and say, wow, the Bible's really misogynistic. Man, Paul really didn't like women. Man, the Bible's anti-woman, which is completely the opposite of all religious texts. There is none more pro-woman than the Bible and no religious leader more pro-woman than Jesus Christ. He broke so many social norms when it came to women. What Paul was referring to in that verse was he was referring to if a pastor of a church was speaking and his wife was sitting in the back of the room and if he says something incorrectly or she has a question to not speak up or raise her hand in the middle of the church and say, hey, Corey, you did that wrong, you said that wrong, but to wait till after service and then ask the question. That's all that was referring to. So it's like if my wife stood up, she's not here, she was at the five o'clock. If she stood up and was like, hey, you mispronounced that word. That would be very disrespectful. It would embarrass me. And so Paul said, hey, just wait till afterwards to correct your husband, right? You know, which has happened many times in the past. But anyways, <laughs> she's like, hey, you know, you, mis you know, you misinterpreted that. And I'm like, Ugh. so anyway, and then you fix it at the other ones. That's why she comes to the five o'clock. Anyways, <laughs> so the author of Hebrews wanted to, the point of Hebrews is exceptionally simple. If you wanted to come up with a thesis for Hebrews, it's essentially Jesus is superior or God is incomparable. The word that we see a lot, the Greek word that comes up in Hebrews a lot is the word Cretan. Now this word means more excellent. It means superior. It means better. And you see it a lot in the book of Hebrews. And so not only is the author saying that Jesus is superior, He's saying that the New Testament promise, covenant, is better than the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament's irrelevant. If you don't have the Old Testament, you don't even know why we have a New Testament. You don't even know why we have Jesus at all come down to earth and die on the cross if you don't understand the Old Testament. If you were with us during Daniel, don't you see how relevant the Old Testament is? But... Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the completion, if you will. He embodies all the promises that God gives his people in the Old Testament. And no book, like I said earlier, no book blends the Old Testament and the New Testament better than the book of Hebrews, in my opinion. It blends it very, very well. Okay, so before I get into the text, the first part the, the, the author of Hebrews is going to prove to the, to the recipients, one, that Jesus is superior to the prophets of the Old Testament. And then the second part, he's going to prove that Jesus is superior to angels because the people that were receiving this might have thought that Jesus was just another angel like Michael or Gabriel. He said, no, he's better than that. Okay. It's a short chapter. We'll get through it pretty fast and um, I'll break it down to the best of my abilities. You should have got a notes handout, has everything I just said and has everything I'm going to say uh, for the remainder of the service, okay? I'm going to pray for you guys, and uh, please pray for me. And um, that's it. Is anyone else ready for it to be summer? My Lord. Yeah, I was thinking the other day how much I miss my flip-flops and how I just want to put my flip-flops on and stand up here in a t-shirt and kick those suckers off and be comfortable again. I go into this like seasonal depression thing in the winter where I just, I, we have this huge bay window at the front of our house, and I just look outside and it looks beautiful, but you know you can't go out there, right? It's like looking at deep space. You're like, I know I'm going to die if I go out there, but it looks really, really pretty. Um, let me pray. I'm digressing. So, okay. Lord Jesus, God, I love you so much. Um, Father, I, I, there's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be than right here and right now. 
And God, I thank you for the people that are in this room. I thank you that I have the opportunity to be with them, that you have given me the opportunity to teach your word, God, that is so dense and it's so beautiful and it's so life-changing. God, give, just give me uh, grace as I teach it today and give me strength, Lord. God, bless everyone in this room who hears it. and Open up our eyes and our ears and help us to grow spiritually because of it. Father, we pray for every church in our city. Lord, if they are teaching that you are the way, the truth, and the life, Father, I pray, God, that you bless the pastors and the leadership and the elders of those churches and the congregations. And Father, Lord, we just pray that your kingdom advances. We don't care about the kingdom of the experienced community, God. We care about the kingdom of you. We care about your kingdom, Lord, and we want it to grow. We thank you, Father, Lord. Humble us, God, and speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter one of Hebrews. I'm going to read the first three verses, and I'm going to do my best to break them down, okay? Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So the, the, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so though the author and the destination are not clear, the message is absolutely clear. And right off the bat, the author lays down three simple things that God spoke, he revealed himself to humanity, and he did it in a bunch of different ways. And one of those ways was through prophets. Again, if you're with us for the book of Daniel, he was a prophet. God sent him things to say, and he would go out and say it. And throughout history, God has revealed himself in fragments, not all at once, but in these fragments. And he did that through angels. He did that through visions given to men and women. He did that through events. He did that through people. All these different things that are mentioned in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, God spoke in these different ways and revealed more and more of himself to us. And what he spoke through the prophets was vital. Now think about this. Through the prophets, kings, nations, and people were warned. They were corrected. They were sometimes punished. They were sometimes edified. And that was through the word that God gave them. Look at Daniel, if you were here for that. If it wasn't for Daniel... Kings would have fallen if it wasn't for Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar would have never known the true God. And so through a man, God would speak and whole nations, whole empires would be affected. Now that's a big deal. An even bigger deal than that though is what was said through Jesus. That we received the gospel through Jesus. What Jesus did was the climax. It was the most definitive thing. It was superior over everything that the prophets did. No prophet, as good of a, a man as they were, as good of a leader as they were, no one except Jesus came down from heaven, lived like us, but perfectly, died, resurrected, and ascended back up to heaven. And what that does is it showed us, after Jesus came, lived, died, and ascended, that it showed us that we have entered into a new evolution of humanity's relationship to God. Things were different now. No longer did we have to go through all these religious ceremonies. No longer did we have to go through a priest. We now have this direct access to God, and that came through the Son. So if you go back and read verses 2 and 3, very, very short, but very, very cram-packed 
with some very brief statements, some phrases that show the magnitude of Jesus. Again, remember these first three verses are just about how great Jesus is and how superior Jesus is. The first couple of phrases about, are about the relationship that Jesus Christ has to all creation. I love this. It says that God made the universe through Jesus. It shows that Jesus Christ has always existed and not just existed, that Jesus Christ is the creator, that he is the one that spoke the universe into existence. He's the creator of time. He's the creator of space and he controls all creation. If you're on Instagram and you're not following NASA, you're not using Instagram to its fullest capabilities. You need to follow NASA and go and look at those images of Saturn and look at the images of Jupiter and look at the things that the Hubble telescope has taken pictures of. Jesus controls all that. He controls all creations. It mentions that in Hebrews 2.8 that we'll cover next week. So not only his relationship to all creation, he also has this unique relationship to the Father. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He reflects God's spotless purity. So when Jesus came, there's been these arguments and these contentions for centuries now. When Jesus was on earth, he was fully God and he was fully man, but he wasn't humanity in the way that we are. He was perfect. He was perfect humanity. No sin, no faults, nothing wrong. He's also the light that changes the heart of humanity. That unless we have Jesus Christ, there's nothing good in us. Whenever the world tells you, man, just look inside yourself, there's good in there, there's not. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no good in us. And so Jesus is the exact expression of God. He's the exact representation of God. In other words, Jesus is God. He is God. And so C.S. Lewis and, and Josh McDowell elaborated on C.S. Lewis's writings you have to come to the conclusion when you talk about Jesus Christ, he's either one of three things. You can't have it any more ways than one of three. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Whenever people say Jesus was a really, really great guy, but he wasn't the son of God, would you consider someone who walked around and pathologically lied about them being God, would you consider that to be a good person? At the very least, they're crazy, or they're a pathological liar, or what they're saying is true. You can't have it multiple ways. It has to be one or the other. Now, when it comes to Jesus's relationship with the Father, there's also been arguments and debates for centuries and centuries and centuries. What does that mean? What is his relationship with the Father? What is the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one? What does that mean? What does that look like? And people have been arguing about that and councils have met. And there was a guy named Arian in the third century who said Jesus was not God. And so the Nicene Creed got together in, 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 in the city of Nicaea and they determined that Jesus was God. And there's always been debates on this. But if aspects of God were not incomprehensible, then he wouldn't be God. Let me show you, this is from the Athanasian Creed because I know you guys are always wondering what the Athanasian Creed says. It says this. This is just a snippet of it, okay? Not written by the guy Athanasius. It was written with his name on it. We don't know who wrote it. This is about the fifth century, okay? They wrote this. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead, the Father of the Son of the Holy Spirit, is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. This is the part I like. The Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. 
There is a part of me that has just grown really, really comfortable not knowing every facet of God. Whenever people are like, man, I can explain the Holy Trinity. It's like an egg. It's not like an egg. God is much more complicated than an egg or ice or vapor or whatever analogies we use. I know people mean well, but it's okay to just step back and say, we're not going to get it until we meet God face to face. That is completely fine, right? So another thing that, this, that verse 2 and 3 talk about is it talks about the son's relationship to the entire world, what he's doing in the world. It says that Jesus is, Jesus is the sustainer of the world, that he's the one responsible for carrying God's plan to its completion. We know that if Jesus is in charge, that the world will not fall into utter chaos. We know that because if you just flip a couple of books over, into the book of Revelation. If you go back and read the book of Daniel, if you read the book of Ezekiel, we know that God has a plan and it's gonna work. And this plan is unfolded right here, right in the word of God. And what Jesus does is he holds all things together. He sustains all things together because of the word, because of God's word. Jesus carries this out and he will carry it out all the way to the end. We also see the redemptive work of Jesus. This may be the best part. That the Son brought us purification for sins, and that through the grace of God the Father, Jesus removed the stain of sin from us if we accept that. Now, the closest thing that we can do to a work is we can choose to follow Jesus. But besides that, there's nothing really we can do. There is no merit on our part, there's no thing we can do. It is by the grace of God. It is by the love of God that we can be forgiven of our sins. Listen, that we can be forgiven of all the horrible things we've done. We may not be reconciled to everyone on earth, but we are reconciled at least to God. After we're forgiven, we are justified, which means that God makes us righteous. That he says, this person is okay. They've been forgiven. Now they are righteous. They are good. And then the third step of that is that once God has forgiven us and he's justified us, it says that he sanctifies us. That's a fancy word for God looks at all of us and starts to set us aside because he has a purpose for every single person in this room. He sets us aside and he says, I want this woman to lead this group or I want this man to start this business and, and glorify my name through that. I want this young person to go into their school and do this. I want them to do this. And he sets us aside. He sanctifies us for a purpose. That's what he does. So what we've learned in just the first three verses is this. Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was the prophet. And he was the prophet from what God spoke, the final word to all of humanity. He's also the priest, not the priest like in the Catholic church or like a pastor or something like that. He is the one that removes sin. He's the ultimate priest. He removes sin, he removes shame, he removes guilt if we simply follow to walk by, if we choose to follow, uh, walk behind him and follow him. He's also the king and deserves the most supreme place of honor. He is the king. And we talked about he is also the eternal, incomprehensible God. That's who Jesus is. He's not just a good man. He's not just a dude that had some good ideas. He wasn't just a philosopher and a teacher. He is God, okay? So he's superior to prophets, it's pretty safe to say that the author of Hebrews made a pretty good point that he's superior to prophets. Now, let's get into the next part. He's superior 
to the angels. Okay, this is what it says. Now, in your, your Bible, if you have one, there'll either be some quotes or there'll be some bold or, or it'll be like set aside. These are Old Testament quotes, okay? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, God says, your throne God is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like clothing, and you will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like a robe. Keep that passage in mind. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? They are not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So he's making the point that God made Jesus more superior to the angels. Now, the reason this is brought up is a lot of the recipients of this letter, so we think, probably referred to Jesus as an angel. They probably thought he was on par with Michael and Gabriel and the other angels they had heard about in the Old Testament. He was just another angel. They had missed the fact that he wasn't only superior to the other angels, he was the creator of all the other angels. He was the one that spoke them into existence. And so the author aimed to clear up this misconception by kind of doing this compare and contrast. God said this to Jesus. Did he ever say that to the angels? And he compares what they do, and he uses a lot of Old Testament quotes. There's seven of them, if you go back and count them. Now, the first one is in verse 5, and he's quoting Psalms 2-7. This is a passage that Paul also used, and Luke recorded this in the book of Acts. And what it was is it was proclaiming Jesus's royalty, his dignity, because he came down, he died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. He was superior to the angels. Then the next quote is from 2 Samuel. And what he was speaking about, the author, is he said, hey, look, you guys know who David is. He's a guy, slingshot, right? Killed the giant. One of the greatest kings in all of Jewish history. He says, a long time ago, God promised David that through his bloodline would come the Messiah, the Savior. The author is basically saying, this is him. Jesus is that Messiah. That makes him superior to the angels. He's also superior in dignity and honor. Not only is Christ superior because he's the son of God, but there's this honor that he's due. When he was born, God said, all of the angels, you need to bow down and worship Jesus. So verse six and seven blend a little bit of Psalms and a little bit of uh, Deuteronomy. And it's talking about the fact that the angels worship Jesus. And if you go back and read the Christmas story in Luke chapter two, right? The Peanuts cartoon, right? If you go back and you read that, it says that when Jesus was born, all the heavens bowed down to him. They worshiped him. So Jesus is superior to the angels because Jesus bows down to no one. 
He is God and everything else bows down to him. This is simple stuff, but this was new information to whoever was receiving this letter. Okay, so what do angels do? We talked about angels a little bit uh, in the book of Daniel, right? Talked about angels. What do angels do? Verse seven says this. It's quoting from Psalms 104.4 and compares angels to the natural elements of wind and fire. What angels essentially do is they do God's bidding. So Jesus says, do this, and the angels go out and do that bidding. They are messengers. They are deliverers. They are people that help. And it says, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but in verse 14, it mentions that they are sent to aid those people who have inherited salvation. Did I tell this service my angel story last week? I think I only told the 11. Okay. If you're new here, you're going to think I'm a complete whack job, but um, let me tell this story. So we were doing Daniel chapter 11, right? And we just got done talking about a lot of angels, talking about all this angel stuff. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I struggle with the whole angel thing. Not that I don't believe in them. Not that I don't think they're not there. I, I know what the Bible says. But whenever people are just like, man, I just called angels down or I did angels this and guardian angel that and I saw an angel and all this angel stuff. I'm always kind of like, mm, you know, I'm always skeptical of that stuff. I'm just being honest, okay? So uh, at the seven o'clock service two weeks ago, I always walk up here and I go pray at this far post before I walk up here and, uh, and teach, okay? And so during the last song, I go up to this far post and I'm praying and I do not know why I felt compelled to pray this prayer. I'm usually just praying, God, please don't let me mess this up too bad, right? This particular prayer though, I said, God, if you have guardian angels, I said, Lord, you know that I struggle with the whole angel thing. If you have guardian angels, would you just send them and, and just make sure that they're watching out over me during this lesson? I'm nervous. Can you send them and just make sure that the church is okay and that, that everything's okay? And I said, God, I don't know if you have angels for me or for our church or for the city. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I'm just gonna trust you. That's all, I, that's all I prayed, okay? So I came up here and taught my lesson. I, you know, went okay, taught my lesson. Afterwards, I went to the back. I'm taking my microphone off and, you know, getting my phone and my car keys and kind of getting ready to leave. And there's a student pastor from an evangelical free church in Minneapolis. Conservative church, you know, they're not charismatic. They're not super weird, you know, like none of that stuff. He's a student pastor, really nice guy. His name's Phil. Met him a couple of times. And whenever he's in town, he comes to church here. He came up to me as I was putting all my stuff up and he goes, hey man, can I tell you something? And I was like, yeah, sure, man, what's going on? And he said, you're going to think I'm crazy. And I was like, no, I mean, go ahead. And he goes, he was really apologetic. He goes, okay, don't think I'm crazy. But he said, during the last song, I had my eyes closed and I was worshiping. And he said, as clear as can be in my head, I saw these two big chairs on each side of the stage and there was these large guardian angels. And I said, I felt like they were just sent to look out over you while you were teaching and make sure the congregation was okay. He's like, is that super weird or what? And I sat there and looked at him and I just stared at him for a second. Man, the hair on my arm stands up every time I mention that story. And I sat there and stared at him and I said, can I tell you what I prayed? And I told him and dude just lost it because he's not into that stuff either, right? We're both like skeptical of that stuff. And that was before I studied the book of Hebrews. And then you see that it says in the first chapter that that is the angel's job by God is to send them out just to watch over those that inherit salvation, to watch out for us. I hope that didn't freak you guys out too much. Man, I wanted to pray for everyone after that. Like, I mean, <laughs> my wife would sneeze and I'm like, let me pray for you. I mean, like I had so, so much faith. Um, it did a lot for me. Anyways, <laughs> 
So Jesus has a superior role to these angels. Verse eight and nine come from Psalm 45. And these words show us some very, very important things about what Jesus does. So if angels go out and do Jesus's bidding, what does God do? What does Jesus do? He is the ruler on his throne. The second thing is his throne is eternal. I love that. Jesus's throne is never in jeopardy of being overthrown. Never. No one will ever overthrow his throne. It is immovable. The third thing is this, Jesus loves righteousness. Above us getting together and worshiping and singing songs and teaching the word, Jesus loves what we do on the day-to-day things. He loves when we fall in love with righteousness, when we want to do the right thing. You know, the measure of a Christian is not is, is not the, the barometer of a Christian is not measured by how often they come to Sunday or Saturday services or even how often they read their Bible. The measure of a Christian comes on Tuesday when work sucks. Amen. It comes when your neighbor is being a pain in the butt, right? It comes when there's pressure and adversity. It comes when no one is watching us. That's righteousness. That's righteousness. And God loves when we fall in love with righteousness. Jesus is also superior to the angels because he's unchanging. The longest quote is verse 10, and, uh, 10 through 12. It's from Psalms 102. And, and Peter echoed this. I love this part. We see that Jesus, God, is the only creator. He creates everything, and he's the only one that can undo everything. He is the only stability. He is the only security. And if we're anchored to him, we'll be okay. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter, and again, it mentions it here in Hebrew. Let me read it real quick. It says, And the heavens and the works were created by your hands. They will perish. They will wear out like clothing, and you will roll them up like a cloak. It's talking about the universe, that Jesus has the power to roll up the universe like a cloak and make it disappear. We see this in the book of Revelation, that all the old heaven and the old earth will disappear, and God will make a new heaven, a new earth, a new universe a new solar system, that God will do that. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, that astrophysicists now are starting to agree that the universe will expand and then eventually contract and disappear and then re-expand. That's what astrophysicists believe. That's exactly what the Bible says multiple times, that astrophysicism is just now catching up with the Bible, that that's what God do. He, He has the power to roll away the universe and to expand it again. Jesus is also superior because of the authority that God has given him. The last quote is from Psalm 110.1, that Christ's ascension lifted him up to the place to where he sat at the right hand of God. Now that, that comment is probably more a figurative comment than it is a literal comment. I don't know if he's literally sitting there next to God's throne, but I think that means that it's his place of power, that he was God's place of power. Jesus claimed that this verse pertained to him. You know why Jesus was crucified? Not because of miracles and not because he was a threat to society or whatever. He claimed to be God. That's why they crucified him. And he claimed in the gospels in Mark 12, 36, that he was the one who was going to ascend and assume the authority of God. And a time came or a time will come when Christ's enemies will be put under his footstool. That has not happened yet but the New Testament says it is inevitable that all of the enemies of Christ will eventually be his footstool. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty epic passage. It says this, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. Let me pause there. 
There will come a time when Jesus will put an end to all human man-made institutions. Governments, finances, economics, culture, all those things will come to an end. Jesus is the one that has the power to end all power, all authority on earth. And it says he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that Jesus is going to deal with, the last enemy that he's going to make his footstool is death itself. God never intended for us to die. It was through sin that death was brought into this. And the last enemy that Jesus is going to deal with is death itself. He's going to put an end to death and we will live on for eternity. In contrast to what the Son does, we've already talked about this a little bit, is what the angels do. So if Jesus is the source of all, the creator of all, the angels carry out his directives. In verse 14, like I said earlier, mentions that the angels' primary duties are to care for and to deliver believers. That's us. That their primary objective is to go out and to aid us. Okay? Now let me see if I can tie this all together. Thinking of the thought, the thesis, the statement, if you will, for chapter 1, most of Hebrews, is that Jesus is superior. Now, in our life, what we tend to do is we're constantly looking for some sort of fulfillment. And we look through it in a multiplicity of ways. We try to find something that's going to make us feel better, whether it be some kind of material possession or whether it be sex or drugs or whether it be you know, some kind of entertainment or whether it be some new phone or, or whatever the case may be. We're always looking for something. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's a guy named Solomon. He was one of the sons of David called the wisest man who's ever lived, Solomon. He contributed Proverbs. He contributed Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, however you want to say it. And he also contributed a really happy book called Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've, if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it's like the, uh, the emo book of the Bible, right? It's like the super kind of downer a little bit, unless you understand what it's talking about. Now, if you get into Ecclesiastes 1, you have to know a little bit about who Solomon was. Solomon had 700 wives, he had every luxury you could possibly obtain. He had more power than anyone on earth at his time. He had absolutely everything. And at the end of his life, he penned the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter one, it simply says this, it is all absolute futility. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? He said, everything I have, some of your translations, if you have a different translation than mine, says it is all vanity. It's all self-centered, all of it. And what he was referring to is, at the end of his life, obtaining everything. Everything you can think of that you want, Solomon had it on a certain level for his time. And after having all those things, he looked at it and said, apart from God, this is all dumb. Apart from God, this does not fulfill us. And from a man that had it all, he eventually realized that God was superior. So now let's take it down to our level, okay? If someone walked into this room right now, an agnostic, an atheist, someone who's a universalist or someone, whatever your case may be, someone who's struggling with Christianity, if you walk into this room and if you are wholeheartedly pursuing truth, regardless of what truth looks like, not pursuing the Bible per se, but you want answers, you want to know what the meaning of life is, you want to know what absolute right and wrong is, you want to know what goodness is, that's what you're pursuing. If that's where your heart is, all the distractions, 
the sedatives and the intoxicants of life will leave you wanting. I'm not just talking about drugs there. We're going to talk about distractions, sedatives, and intoxicants. All the sex, all the power, all the success, all the materialism, all the things we do to take our minds off whatever, the video games we play so we don't have to deal with reality, the pills we pop because we don't want to deal with our issues, the different things we do. If you are looking for truth and if you are looking for goodness, genuinely looking for truth and goodness, all of the intoxicants, sedatives, and distractions of life will always leave you wanting. Listen, not just those things, listen to me carefully, not just pleasures, but also religion. Now, before I became a Christian, I was almost 23. I was a month away from turning 23. My wife and I had tried everything. We had been to Buddhist temples. We had been to Hindu temples. We'd, been, we'd, we'd explored universalism. My wife was essentially an atheist. We'd gone, we had tried everything. I had tried all kinds of hallucinogenic drugs. I'd been addicted to drugs. All these different things to try to find an answer. And I am so confident in this book and I am so confident in the truth that is Jesus Christ that I would encourage you, go out and research the works that it takes to be a good Muslim or a good Buddhist. My friend Muhammad, who's sitting on the third or fourth row over here, when he helped me teach that lesson on Islam, one of the, one of the fascinating things that I learned from him, he used to be an imam, by the way. He's, he's a, he was a teacher of the Quran. When you talk about the analogy that Muslims use of their journey from this earth to heaven, he says it's like walking on a razor blade. One false move and you go to hell. Do you know the only religious text, the only religious text that's ever been written that says you get to go to heaven not based on your merit, but on God's merit is the Bible. Study it. Research it. I remember when I worked at the Red Rose, there was this white girl that drove a Mercedes and wore a lot of jewelry. This, that'll be relevant here in a second. She would come in to the Red Rose all the time, and she was a very devout Buddhist. And I had studied a lot on Buddhism, and I would see this girl in her $40,000 car and her nice jewelry, and I'm like, so you've given up all the pleasures of life, I see. <laughs> because what happens is, when it boils down to our works, we will never succeed. When it boils down to what I can do, I will always come up short. And again, the only religious text in the history of humanity that says no matter how hard you try, you're going to miss, but God loves you so much that he'll put the arrow on the bullseye for you. The only text that says that. So study the works of Hinduism and study the works of Buddhism and Islam. Study them. Pick up the Quran. I, I, I challenge you. Pick it up and read it and see if it's for you. If you're a woman, when you get to the chapter that says you're worth half as much as a man, that's a big turnoff in our society, at least I believe. Research it. Research it. I believe in this so much that I believe you will come back to this. Research it. Pick them up. Look at the self-centeredness of Hinduism. Look at the self-centeredness of humanism. Look at the hypocrisy of moral relativism. If you don't know what that is, it's a fancy word for saying, whatever you want to do is fine with you and I'll do whatever I want to do. Well, I want to kill you, rape your wife, and steal your car. Does that work for you? It works for me. See, that doesn't work, does it? Do you know why Justin the martyr, he's one of the famous uh, fathers of our faith. Do you know why he became a Christian? He was raised in a pagan home and he saw all the hypocrisy and contradictions of all the other gods. And he said, Christianity is the only one that doesn't contradict itself. That's why he became a believer. He looked at all these other things and said, these obviously don't work. 
If you want to study Buddhism, how many trips around the samsara does it take before you eventually reach the middle? So you live this perfect, depraved life, this entire life, a life of just, just depriving yourself of every luxury in the hopes that you'll turn out a little bit better in the next life. Trying to do more good so you'll outweigh all your bad. And Christians don't believe in karma. Christians believe we reap what we sow. But what's great about God is if we've sowed a bunch of crazy seeds, God through his grace goes up and tills up the ground. He destroys that. We don't believe in karma. But even look at Christianity. Many of you are in this room because you thought religion saved you and it does not. Whenever rituals start trumping relationship, Christianity falls flat too. You guys with me? Whenever we start buying into the concept, well, if I just dress like this or pray over this, if I do this seven times a week or if I do these different things, we start making ritual more important than our relationship with God. And we also tend to fall flat. So in all things, in all things, to the past that we've tried, to the different ways we've tried to find fulfillment, to all these things, Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. Research it, study it, dig into it. To all religious figures and to all religious practices, it is clear that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior, like I said earlier, because it's the only faith on planet earth where we achieve salvation, not based on me, but based on him. He's superior because his work is better than my work and it will always be better than my work. He's gracious, he's loving. He holds all power, he holds all authority. He holds all answers, he holds all time. Eternity is in his hands. If you're curious about economics or marital issues, it's in here. If you're curious about how to structure your family, it's in here. If you're curious about nationalism and war and all these different things that we struggle with, it's in here. If you're worried about how to be a good employee or a good boss, it's in here. All of the answers are contained in God's word. And so whenever people come to me and they say, Corey, I tried all that, I tried it. I wanna step back and say, really? Have you wholeheartedly tried it? And what I mean by that is this, if you go into 1 Thessalonians, this is what Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica. This is what he encouraged them to do. Now, look, if you do all these things and it still doesn't work for you in Christianity, okay, I'll wish you well on whatever endeavors you make. But very few people have done this, and this is what we're instructed to do. The first is to rejoice always. That means instead of having such a pessimistic outlook on absolutely everything, that we should look at things positively. That we should decide to go into work and be the light of our work not just another one of the gossips and another one of the people dragging everyone down. We should rejoice. We should pray. So many people say, I've never heard God speak or I've never felt God. Do you pray? What is it? The, the band Me Without You said, when we confess, we keep it long, but when we pray, we keep it short. We typically only speak to God when we've done something really, really bad, when things are falling apart or we need something. We don't just commune with him. How would you like it if your spouse only talked to you when they wanted sex or they've just done something really, really bad? Would that be much of a relationship? And we wonder why we don't feel God because we don't talk to God. Pray, pray constantly, pray without ceasing, give thanks. When's the last time you went into prayer not because you wanted something, because you simply wanted to tell the Lord, thank you. How entitled have we become, Christians? 
I'm not just talking about the 20-somethings that want someone to pay their college tuition. I'm talking about all of us. How entitled have we become? Man, God doesn't love me. I can't remodel that bathroom this year. Dear Lord, do you know we have hundreds of people that come to this church that sleep out in the weather that you guys walk through this morning from your car to the building? Right now, we're feeding about 150 of them in the park. Right now, they sleep in this. Sometimes we just need to get on our knees and say, God, I don't even deserve the breath that's in my lungs that gives me the ability to speak to you right now. We need to adopt the mindset that we are owed nothing, nothing. It is only by God's love that you and I can be in this room right now. And we need to give thanks. The first thing you should do when you engage God in prayer is thank and praise him. We also need to learn to not stifle the spirit. Some of you would have the Holy Spirit use you in really, really phenomenal ways, but you're afraid. There's some of you who are called to give prophecies. There's some of you, freak you guys out, I already talked about angels, right? There's some of you in here that God wants to give you the gift of speaking in tongues or the interpretation of tongues. There's some of you that God wants to give you the, the, the spiritual gift of miracles and healing. There's some of you in this room that God wants to give you supernatural wisdom and knowledge. Those things are in the Bible. They're not just there for fun. They're there so Christians can ask and petition God for these things and not stifle the Holy Spirit working through you. We sometimes think that you have to call a pastor or someone with a master's in divinity, which by the way, I only have a bachelor's and it's in English. Anyway, so we feel that we need to call people. Hey, will you pray for me? You pray for you. You pray for your kids. Man, the Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in you too. You do it. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. You can do those things. Don't despise prophecies. Don't despise the words that are written here. Don't despise leadership or people in your life that are influential and strong that come to you and give you words. Don't despise correction. Don't despise things that God gives you in prayer time, but test all those things. God will never contradict God. So when we break open this word, if someone comes up to me, and guys, I am not trying to be mean. People all the time come into my office and it's like, the Lord told me to divorce my wife. And I'm like, really? Because that contradicts this big time. I don't think the Lord told you to do that. Let's test that. Let's make sure that you really heard from the Lord. Well, why do you want to divorce her? We just don't get along. That's not sufficient. That's not sufficient. That does not align with this word. Guys, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But whenever we feel like the Lord is telling us something, we need to go back to the word and test it. We need to hold on to what is good. And then the last one, the one where we really struggle, is we need to stay away from every kind of evil. Corey, I don't know why I keep getting drunk. It's because you keep going to bars. Corey, I don't know why I keep cheating on my wife. It's because you go to strip joints. Corey, I don't know why I have a lust problem. It's because you won't shut your laptop at two o'clock in the morning. You need to stay away from those things. There are some places, you can think I'm legalistic all day long. There are some places the Holy Spirit just does not want you to go. If you go back to the, uh, uh, the stories of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Everyone knows about those cities, infamous cities. Abraham had some family in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew that they should not be in the middle of this, this, this hotbed of sin, right? And so what Abraham did, and go back and fact check me on that, he went right to the edge of the city. He didn't go in the middle of the sin. He didn't subject himself. He didn't see things that he shouldn't have seen. He didn't hear things he shouldn't have heard. He stayed a, a, a distance away from it. And he said, God, I have family in there. Deliver them. What happens? He did. He didn't have to go into it. He didn't have to subject himself to things. He stayed away from every kind of evil. And he let God do what God does best. 
save, and restore. That's what he did. If you will do these things, if you will take this scripture and print it out and stick it on your mirror in the morning, or if you will walk around with it or get it tattooed backward on your chest so you can, I'm just joking, don't do that. <laughs> Corey Drake will end up doing that eventually, probably. So, um, <laughs> so if you're giving announcements, he's got First Thessalonians all up on his neck. If you will take these words and apply them to your life, I think you will see that Jesus is superior. He is superior. If I could tell you guys how much I love you and how much I care for you, if I, 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 when I sing that last song that we were singing, man, I have such a hard time. Like, I'm back there and I'm singing it and we talk about the resurrection and I, I you guys are gonna think I'm so cheesy, but I, I fantasize sometimes about being in heaven with you guys and all of us just fists in the air worshiping, not just singing about the Lord, but seeing the Lord. And I think about you and I wanna see you there. I know that sounds so cheesy, but this life is so inferior to the life that is coming. The gods that we create now are so inferior to the only true God. And I know it's tough. I know it's tough. I know it's tempting. I know the pleasures of life are always reaching out. We're bombarded by it, right? You can't watch a Pepsi commercial without sex. You can't, you know, you can't do anything without these things just bombarding you. But I just want to encourage you. God is superior. Christ is superior. He's superior. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, on the right and left, there's communion, guys. That's a remembrance. That's something we do to remember that Jesus is superior. He's superior because he's the only God that came down to earth, lived, died, rose again, poured out his Holy Spirit on his people, and ascended to sit at the right hand of God. He loves us so much. Now, everyone is welcome to take communion. It represents the body and the blood of Jesus. Everyone's welcome to take that. The only thing you have to do is you have to ask God to forgive you of your sins. If you don't take that, please be respectful of the people that are. Just keep your conversations quiet or out in the hallway. Also, there's people up here on my left. There's men and women that I trust. They're good men and women. If you have any prayer requests, if you have any insecurities, if you have any doubts, if you're in here and you're agnostic or you're just on the fence, you don't know what you believe, these people can answer your questions. These people can help you. If you're looking for truth and you're looking for goodness, I believe you'll find it because that's what Jesus says. Father, Lord, I love you. God, for everyone in this room, Father, I just pray that you keep your hand on us, Lord. God, let us know deep in our soul, deep in our heart, that you are the way, the truth, and the life and that no one gets to the Father except through you. Lord, we love you. We lift you up and we praise you. God, bless my brothers and sisters in this room. Help us to draw closer to you, God. Help us with our struggles, Lord, and be gracious with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. Thank you.